You are listening to the PJ Performance Podcast with your hosts Paul and Jack. This is episode two with Peter Clark. Today, we have Peter Clark on the podcast. Pete is a good mate of both myself and Jack, and we are very excited to get him on. Before we start, I just want to go over a few things about Pete and give you a bit of background on him. Pete has represented the Windies at a junior level of cricket. He was the director of cricket at UQCC, where we both play, and has been part of the past nine club championships. Professionally, he has completed his Masters in Sports Psych at the University of Queensland and is currently a Sports Psych at Cricket Australia, where he works with the women's team and the Pathways. Pete is not only a great mate and a great bloke, but also very knowledgeable about the game of cricket and the application of sports science to elite performance. Without further ado, let's get cracking. Peter Clark, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great, mate. Thanks for having me on. Mate, I think that's probably the most I've ever complimented you before, so it's nice to have a conversation in a professional manner here. Um, but before we start <laughs> serious stuff, I heard you've been uh, the person to tell the jokes in the team huddles at the start. How did you get that gig with them? Um, that was on a assignment with... So I had a T20 series with the, with the Aussie men. I'm usually with the women or the pathway. I had one series where I stopped in for, for Michael Lloyd. Um, I had a series with the men. And just one of the things is before a game or before training, sometimes uh, Justin Langer, he just calls on someone randomly to, to tell a joke, joke of the day, you know, keep the mood up. And luckily my supervisor, Lloyd, he had given me a bit of a heads up that that would, that that would happen. So the day before the first or the second T20 game, he just tapped me on the shoulder and went, Clarky, you got one for us? Uh, so I ended up telling the joke, the boys liked it, um, and it was received pretty well. So after that, he just kept, kept, kept tapping me on the shoulder. So I did about five or six in a row, uh, and luckily the series ended because I'd run out of jokes, but none of them fell flat on my face. Uh, that's, how I got the, that's how I got the role. Any, any of those you can share on this podcast, mate, or is that for another time, do you think? <laughs> Uh, probably not. I might, I might not hear any of those ones on the podcast. I don't want to give away too many of my, too many of my secrets. Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. So, um, just before we start, mate, can you just touch on your background? So your cricket background, the professional side, obviously with everything at uni and sort of how you've ended up where you are. Uh, well, originally from, from Barbados in the West Indies, I played a bit of youth cricket over there. I came over to Australia when I was when I was 18 to study, I always wanted to do sports psychology. So came over to University of Queensland. Uh, you know, I started off there, I played a winter. I came in at the end of February, so I just missed finals and whatnot. So I played a season of winter, warehouse cricket in C grade. We won a premiership. <laughs> we had four, no, we had three girls in our team um, that hadn't really played that much before. We ended up taking out the, the premiership, which was great, great fun. I uh, started off in third grade at UQ. Um, played a couple of games there and then, then played most of the season in twos. Was really lucky to step into a side that had a lot of success. Um, and we were able to win that, that title. And then the next year, I made my, made my first grade debut and was up and down for a couple of years and then finished out the last few years in, 
in first grade. Um, we lost a couple of two-day grand finals in a row uh, that I was a part of, and then we finally finally won one. Uh, and I, I was time for me to call time on on the playing career. I'd finished my university degree, started working full time, so that was the end of kind of my playing career. And right after that, I um, was lucky enough to be the first director of cricket at UQ. They, they opened up that role, so I took on that. You know, helped run the academy, um, hiring the coaches for the, across the programs, and still coaching the, the men's the men's club. And that's the role I did for for three years. And then once I started working for Cricket Australia. My time was a bit more stretched. I couldn't do director cricket in full anymore. So just now coaching first and second grade um, men at the, at the club. Petty Clark, Jack Clayton here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jacko. Um, for, the, for the listeners out there, um, Petey has been a bit of a mentor for me and has also coached me from probably, what, the age of about 14, Pete, do you think? Um, yeah, sounds about right. Is about right. But yeah, Petey's just been really good for me um, in terms of working on my mental side of the game with cricket, um, but also the technical side. So before we blow too much smoke up your ass, Pete, um, and talk about the World Cup, I just wanted to kind of touch on um, what, one of the big topics that's kind of going around the, I guess, sports psych field at the moment um, in terms of uh, mental toughness. And it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment in the research. I think in 2016, the amount of articles coming out with the word mental toughness nearly double compared to all the other years. I guess, can you just touch on for the listeners out there what, what mental toughness is and, and how it might um, impact performance? Yep, that's a, that's a great cha- uh, question, Jacko. It's definitely a, a buzzword. Um, it's something that we all kind of, everybody kind of knows what it is, but it's really poorly defined. Um, so we could think of different players or examples of people who we think are mentally tough. You know, you'll think like a Michael Jordan, uh, you know, from a creative perspective, someone like Steve Waugh and tennis, like Rafa Nadal, we all kind of know what it looks like, but we don't know what it's made of necessarily and how to, and more importantly, this is what everyone wants to know, how do I get mental toughness? Um, there's not an easy short answer, but it is multifactorial. There's several things involved in being able to be mentally tough, so to speak. There's obviously sport-specific stuff, understanding your sport, the ebbs and flows of where your emotions are likely to go up and down. Um, and what we're really talking about is how do I stay, how do you stay clear, you know, and continue to make good decisions and execute no matter what's happening around you on the field, uh, on the field or off the field, I should say. And different sports present different challenges, right? So sometimes it's off-field challenges that you need to be resilient or mentally tough to manage, um, you know, whether it's media scrutiny or whether it's the amount of time spent away from home or whether or not it's worrying about selection or your place in the side. Um, those are some challenges that pop up. Um, or it might be within your sport, like, you know, so sport like tennis, which presents really clear, important points. Every game, game point, break point, double break point, set point, match point. Every time you get to one of those and your brain, you know, starts to look forward a bit too much, or you're looking back thinking about a mistake, it can create, you know, the illusion of pressure and emotions heightened. So how do you manage that, you know? And there's different mental skills, I guess, whether it be goal setting and performance routines and imagery, specific mental skills people try to use for the on-field stuff, but that's only one part of it. The other part of it is how do I manage everything in my life? You only get one brain. You don't get like a brain for performance and then one for your everyday life. So in general, how you manage your well-being, what your self-awareness is like, what your self-management and regulation are like, what's your mental health and well-being like. It's, a, it's a quite a holistic picture. Um, so yeah, it's very multifactorial. I don't really like to 
talk about it as something separate or hear this mental toughness thing because it makes it seem like if without everything else, you could just be mentally tough. You could, it's a skill that you develop by itself. And it really isn't. It's just a holistic um, picture with how you manage yourself. Um, and you can apply that to sport or you can apply that to your life off the field. That's my opinion anyway. Yeah, absolutely, Pen. I think getting back to that multifactorial approach, I think that's a really key key point there because a lot of people, as you said, just think that it's it's one skill, but it's having all those things in balance. And I think when you look at the, the best players in the world, you talk about Michael Jordan, you talk about Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer. It seems like although they're, they're great at their sport, they also have such a good life balance um, and things in their life are in check. And I think bringing that back, it really helps um, with your mental toughness on and off the field. Um, have you got anything to add there, Paul, at all? I think that's one of the biggest things is just being able to have that balance. And then and then uh, I think when people do have that, they're able to be more mentally tough per se in the game. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And Pete, on, on that topic, with wellness questionnaires and things like that, is that something that you have a big part of being, you know, the holistic approach and how things are going at home and, you know, how people are waking up and how much sleep they're getting? Is that a big part of it as well? Yeah, so one part of the one part of my role at Cricket Australia is looking after uh, mental health and well-being. Not solely. I'm not the only person responsible for that. All the kind of sports science, sports medicine team and the coaching group have access to what we call daily markers, you know, like so the players will fill out things like their sleep, um, their fatigue, wellness, the things that I get I kind of on a daily basis. They have those markers that they fill out. But I mean, I'm part of that team that helps, I guess, regulate and manage that for the players. Our players are really good generally, particularly the ones I work with in the female space, um, are really good at managing themselves and have really good self-awareness. But yeah, those are definitely factors that are important um, that we kind of get monitored from a group level. But on the individual level, then for sure, you have conversations with players about how things are going off the field, uh, how they're managing different situations that the professional environment might present. And it might not just be on the field. Often it isn't. Uh, often it might be some of the things we touched on, like selection or touring and being away from home for long periods of time or just managing yourself and thinking about contracts and form. And there's a lot of things that don't necessarily just relate to on the field that, that create uh, the illusion of pressure um, for different individuals. So yeah, the well-being component i think if you've got solid well-being um, and mental health over a period of time you're in a much better position to be mentally tough um it doesn't mean that if things don't go well like, you know your partner breaks up with you or there's a death in the family or there's something financial struggles it doesn't mean that the next day you can't perform don't get me wrong um you want to build pretty robust processes within the way you prepare or manage yourself or reflect so that you can withstand certain bumps um, but what it means is over a period of time if you have poor well-being, poor mental health for a long period of time, it will start to affect your ability to perform. Because as I said, you only have one brain. Um, and if it can't function well because, you know, you've got poor mental health, well, then eventually that's going to make its way out to the, to the middle. Yeah, and I think you touched on a really key point there, having a chat to the players. I think with the industry that we're in, there's so much emphasis on, um, you know, the art of coaching and being in touch with the athlete and building interpersonal relationships there. Um, obviously, with psych, that's probably one of the, the key parts of it rather than, you know, yeah, we've got the questionnaire, but how are you feeling actually having a discussion with the athlete? Because that's how you're going to, you know, see how they're going and, you know, really get into the details of, you know, what's going on behind the scenes and everything like that. Yeah, I would agree. I think 
So questionnaires, um, you know, personality profiles, all these things, they're great uh, to an extent, but it doesn't tell you anything about a person really. Um, you have to follow up, you know, like if I, if I had a personality profile of you and Jack, that gives me a little tiny bit of information compared to group norms, but I don't know your story. I don't know why. I don't know the things that motivate you. I don't know what's going on in your life at the moment that have helped shape the way you answer some of those questions. It's to follow up, you know, and it's a day-to-day contact and a connection. That's where it's actually really important. And the psych is the only person that does that. A coach does that. Teammates do that. Um, you know, the physio may do it. Anybody you come into contact with, that human connection um, is a really big part of anybody doing better. So if you look at, even in psychological research, taken away from sport, there have been several studies to suggest that no matter what therapy you use, whether it be um, cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy or acceptance commitment therapy, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, whatever different therapies there are, which all have different validity in different contexts, often up to 50% of the variance so to suggest will someone get better or not, up to 50% of that is down to the therapeutic alliance, which basically means the relationship between the practitioner um, and the client, up to 50%. So what we're really saying is the relationship you develop with your client is probably the most important predictor um, as to whether or not that person is going to improve under your guidance or whether or not you'll have a beneficial working relationship. So definitely the follow-up, the individual touch, um, building relationships, that's where, the, that's where your money's made. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. And I think that's a key thing for any coach out there is developing those interpersonal relationships because you can have the best knowledge in the world, you can be the smartest person, but if you can't connect with your athlete um, and help coach them, then they're not going to get any better. So I think definitely touching on that is a key point for any coach out there is developing those interpersonal relationships and using those to be able to coach the athlete. Agreed, Matt. Paul, Paul. What now, Jack? You're forgetting something, mate. What are you on about? The podcast sponsors. Oh, silly me. You are listening to the PJ Performance Podcast, sponsored by Acceleration, enhancing sports performance, and Acceleware, a professional management system for coaches and managers. That's better, Paul. Well, Pete, it's, it's fascinating to listen to this and get it from your point of view, obviously, with, with what you've been doing. Um, we're going to touch on this a bit later on and go into a bit more depth there, but I think something that Jack and I were very much looking forward to is chatting about the World Cup, mate. So um, first question, what is it like being part of a World Cup and a winning one at that? Like, give us some of your you know favourite moments from it. For you personally, obviously, for the team, um, yeah, what was it like being there? Uh, well, I've been lucky enough to be a part of two, well, three World Cup campaigns with the, with the Aussie women. So the first one was the 50 over World Cup in 2017, uh, which we lost in the semifinal. Um, and that was a pretty devastating result for us. So, you know, we were kind of tag favorites from the outside. Um, and that was a pretty tough loss. And then luckily I've been involved in two more World Cups with the girls, uh, 2018 T20 World Cup in the West Indies, uh, which we were lucky enough to be, or I shouldn't say lucky, the girls, played brilliantly and we we won that World Cup 2018 and then early this year obviously the home World Cup the Women's World Cup 2020 uh, which we were which we won in the end there was a bit of fortune in that one we didn't start well um, so we put ourselves under a bit of pressure the girls played phenomenally the resilience you talk about mental toughness and resilience 
all the pressure of a home World Cup, all the expectations, and we dropped the first game and basically had to win every game remaining in the tournament to win the World Cup. Um, and in those games, there were some pretty tight ones. The, the standard of women's crickets improved across the board. And the girls and the coaching staff were, were pretty phenomenal in maintaining perspective, staying calm, um, and focusing on the next game, what's in front of you. Because ultimately, no matter what's going on, you got to go play cricket, right? you got to watch the ball when you're batting. you got to step fields. you got to be smart with decision-making. So the process of allowing the players to do that was fantastic from the staff and the players themselves, phenomenal. Um, so my experience in being a part of it is just, it's a fantastic opportunity, right? I never was good enough to, to play a World Cup um, on my, you know, as a player. And so to, be, to get the chance to experience it in a different field and to be behind the scenes, really, and be privy to a lot of people's either individual thoughts or group thoughts behind the scenes, um, it's awesome. It's awesome to get to see what actually happens versus what the media sees or what's put on in front of you on the TV. Because um, that's, that's a bit of a performance. Obviously, they're performing on the field. But you're presenting ourselves the way that you want to be perceived, um, whether that be for the opposition or for the fans or for the public. Then behind the scenes, it's not always that smooth. Um, so it's really nice to be a part of it from behind the scenes and see what the process is like. Hey, we talk about winning the World Cup and... And I guess there was a few players probably coming into that World Cup that were under a bit of pressure, particularly Alyssa Healy. What makes people like Alyssa Healy and um, Meg Lanning and um, Elise Perry and, and Beth Mooney so good compared to all the other women in the, world, in the world? Obviously, they have a good skill level, but what really sets them apart um, in terms of their performances on the field? I think you just touched on it by saying that last one. The first part is like tremendous work ethic. You know, they all work really, really hard. At their skills. So the discipline with the, the cricket skills themselves, the application, the training, they all want to win. Like, you know, there's, there's, we know different sports people in different fields who might be slightly more concerned with their own individual performance versus trying to win. All of those players, they just want to win. Um, and they train hard and leave nothing unturned to win. So that's the first part. Um, people often talk about in the mental side, man, there's no great athlete. There's, who's not a hard worker. There's no substitute for hard work, right? So any great athlete you see that performs under pressure, does whatever, is a hard worker. If they do it consistently, if they um, perform consistently. So that's one trait that they all share. Um, other than that, they're quite different with how they go about their business, right? So, and obviously it's not my, it's not my business to be telling out what they, what they do or what they don't do. Um, but they are very different in the way that they prepare. Um, in the way that they respond to different things, they have different personalities. And that's probably the take-home message. There's no one way to do it, right? It's about understanding yourself um, and how you want to prepare. But the bottom line and the common denominator is they all want to win. They all leave no stone unturned, you know, to get better. Um, and they've got the ability to focus on what matters, right? And the, and the bravery to keep playing the way that you know you play when things are going well um, or when they're not going well. That doesn't mean that you never adjust, but the identity of your DNA, you can't be happy to do it when, you know, it's be brave and play shots or play attacking cricket or dig in, whatever your game is. You can't be willing to do it when things are easy and then when it's hard, not do that. So they all got the ability and, and demonstrate the capability to back themselves when things are difficult. Um, that's not all from within, you know, sometimes that's the help and support of other people, but they do all have that in common. Yeah, and Pete, I think we we touched on it a little bit earlier, but being part of that high-performance environment, so the ability of the psych, the S&C, the skills coaches, you know, the manager, 
to all work together. What is it like, obviously, being part of that team away from the players? And you can feel free to plug yourself here, mate. That's absolutely fine. But the integration of everything together, how much, how important is that factor with success? Man, it's obviously, it's a huge factor, right? Because the game's obviously about the players in general, right? They get, that's who people are paying to watch. It's about their success. They're the ones that win and lose the games. They're the ones that get paid the big bucks. They're the ones that deal with the scrutiny and pressure. Um, you know, if we lose and we play poorly, nobody's really gunning for, for the physio. Nobody's really gunning for the psych. Um, the head coach is under that kind of, that kind of pressure, the head coach and the players. Um, it wouldn't really be me to plug myself in. It'd be me to give a plug to our head coach, um, Matthew Mott. He's really a phenomenal leader um, in terms of getting everybody on the same page. He's just a, the best way to put it is he's just a normal bloke. You know, he's a normal true blue Aussie guy, easy going, you know, he works hard and everything, but he makes everybody feel like it's just another day, you know, it's just a normal, you're just hanging out with your mates. That's what it feels like. He's been really great at integrating the staff um, and allowing everybody to play their roles and the playing group as well, make it easy. There's different playing groups that create challenges for you as a staff. Like if everyone's not pulling in the same direction or you've got a few senior players or prima donnas, that can make it hard for you to do your job because you're putting out fires so rather than just, you know, improving and going from zero upward, sometimes you're below zero and you're trying to get back to zero. And that feels like a waste of everybody's time. Um, but luckily, you know, and I shouldn't say just luck, they've been good hiring. Um, the playing group has kind of driven the standard. We are very, I'm very blessed to be a part of a, a working group where all the staff that I get to work with are great at their job, firstly. They all want to work hard, but they're just all good people. Um, and that doesn't always happen. I've been a part of different groups that aren't, that aren't quite as great as that. We're very, very lucky with the staff we have. Um, the other piece with the staff we have is no one's there to be the superstar. Um, that can be an issue. Sometimes as a staff member, the best thing you can do is to lay back. Like when you've got a really good group and they're doing things right and they're taking initiative and they're driving stuff, which is the best case scenario, sometimes it's not that much for you to do, right? At different times, you're chipping in, you're helping, you're observing, you know, you're just doing your part. But you've got to be willing to just do your part and not be a superstar. And there's going to be times where you get called upon to do a big role. And there's other times where you just sit back and chip in. Um, and I think that's what we have. All of our staff members are like that. Uh, all of our playing group are like that. Because if you're not really a part of that mesh, you wouldn't last long in our group. Um, so, yeah, the, the ability to work together, not think my role is any more important than anybody else's. Understand the value in everybody's role and just be willing to play your role. Don't try to be too big for your station. Um, but when it's time for you to step up, step up. So that's the thing what we have in our in our support staff at the moment, and it's definitely what we got in our playing group. So it's yeah, I really can't say too many too many good things about it. It's a pretty a privilege to be a part of it at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. And it sounds like the environment that uh, Matthew Mott and all the support staff are creating is a really facilitative kind of environment, one that challenges the players. Um, but also is very supportive. And I think that's been something in the research recently that's been uh, shown to be a real key for success. And clearly that's showing through with winning the last two T20 World Cups. And like, it's awesome to hear. I think for any coach out there um, or any support staff or whoever it is, building those relationships, building an environment that's uh, facilitative, um, so challenging, but also supportive as well, seems to be absolutely key to team success. Yeah, for sure, Jack. Um, and, and I want to be really careful. Two things I'll touch on. Firstly, we don't 
So yeah, we've got we've got great success. But I, we could also tell you we could have easily been knocked out this World Cup after the second game. Like in the second game, we were three for ten chasing 130 or whatever it was. Uh, and could have easily lost that game. We dropped that game. We probably don't get through to the semifinals. You know, rain could have washed us out the semifinals. And we barely got a match in and went through. So things still have to go your way. And creating a great environment doesn't guarantee success, right? You obviously need skills. You need a great program, great system. You need a bit of luck. Um, so I don't want it to sound like, if oh, everything's great, you know, off the field. And, all the time. and that's why, that's the reason we win. It's definitely a big part of it. It's make sure we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. But with all that being said, how we lost in the second game, I'd be saying the same thing right now. Um, you know, there'd probably be a lot more reviews and stuff because based on wins and losses, there's going to be reactions and overreactions. But everything would have been the exact same had we dropped that second game. We easily could have dropped it. Um, so, yeah, I don't want it to come across as if, yeah, we're winning, we're doing all this. It's because, you know, we've got this great setup. We've got that definitely plays a role, but you can have all that and lose, right? What if three teams have all that? Well, three teams can't win the World Cup. So it is, even though it helps and correlates to an environment of success, it is not the only thing. Um, and there's a bit of luck involved, for sure. And then the next piece I would say is, to, to your point about creating the right environment, there's, there's different theories out there. Uh, one, of my, one of my mentors when I was coming through university is Chris Mallet, Professor Chris Mallet. Um, he introduced me to self-determination theory. We talked about three main factors you want to create in an environment. So you have individuals who are motivated, self-motivated, self-directed, to, to perform, right, or to, to do what they want to do. Um, and those three factors are competence, uh, autonomy, and relatedness. So competence being, you know, people know they're good enough to execute when they need to execute. So how do you help foster competence in people to prove to them that, you go, that they're good enough? It's not about blowing smoke up their ass. It's about being really good at pointing out the things that people do well, creating challenges and things that they can overcome, even if they've got to work for it, but they can overcome it, and prove to themselves, like, well, I'm good enough. We are good enough. So competence. Um, autonomy, how do you give people choice in what they do? No one wants to feel that if they're told what to do all the time. There's things where, of course, you have to do things you don't want to. Um, you know, no one, I shouldn't say no, but most people don't want to. Don't wake up in the morning keen to do all the fitness and the skin folds and different things like that. So there are things they have to do that they might not want to. But where you can, how do you give people autonomy? In the way they want to play their cricket, do you let the playing group drive the direction and the culture? And again, do you have the playing group that you can trust to do that? Uh, which we do. So competence, autonomy, and relatedness. That's the piece, Jack, Jacko, we've been talking about around how do you relate to your athletes? How do they relate to each other? Where's the interpersonal connect, connection? If you can take those boxes, you've got a group where you facilitate competence, uh, autonomy, and relatedness. Well, then generally you get a group that's self-driven and motivated. Um, again, it's not just that simple, but that's something that we strive toward looking at and it's borne fruit in the research. Yeah, I think you're talking about building those interpersonal relationships and with the with the girls at the World Cup, there's different personalities there. You know, they go about, like you said, they go about themselves in different ways when they deal with pressure, you know, how they prepare before a game, things like that. Do you see different traits in higher-level athletes? I know you've worked with the, you know, the boys at UQ, both from first grade down to sixth grade, and you've obviously been the World Cup winning side. Do you see different traits in the higher-level athletes? And how do you go about sort of facilitating and developing these traits? Good point, um, Paul. The, you do see, I guess, a cluster of certain traits. Um, like, you know, we talk about a lot of perfectionism is something that you'll see um, in elite athletes, which makes sense, right? You're always striving to be as good as you can be. 
Um, and sometimes perfectionism can be functional, uh, and sometimes it can be dysfunctional. So, but that's something you see a lot. Like you see people wanting to dot every I cross every T, and it's about using that in a functional in a functional way, not beating yourself up when things aren't perfect, but using that as a way to strive to keep getting better. Um, but perfection is something you see. I mean, look, as a trait, like just hard work of the ones who are successful and consistently successful, hard work is definitely one. I, again, I can't see a, I can't tell you of a great athlete who doesn't have a good work ethic uh, or a great work ethic. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. You can't sustain that. You might get someone who's a freak of nature in terms of talent or body shape or size or skill they can do, but if they're going to sustain that and be great, you know, and greatness means you have to do it for a period of time, then hard work is a, is a non-negotiable. Um, another one like you guys touched on before is the ability to have balance or be holistic. There is the odd athlete who doesn't have great balance and they just drive themselves into their sport and they can be successful at their sport, but it usually falls apart. Um, at some point in time, if the sport has a lot of kind of well-being, demands that cricket does with being away from home, um, or it'll get, it'll catch them after their career. Um, but what I would say is that there's still a heap of variation, even though there's some things all, I guess, great athletes have in common. There's a heap of variation in terms of how people go about the business. You'll find people who are, you know, if you talk about these big five personalities, some people who are really extroverted or someone who's really introverted, um, you will find people who are much more agreeable uh, or open to new experiences. And you'll find people who are less so. Um, there's people who are loud and boisterous. There's people who are quiet and unassuming. You still get all the variation, I guess, in personality that you get in everyday life. Once you look past it, you know, the kind of hard work or whatnot and perfectionist tendencies, those kind of be there a lot, tend to be there a lot. But there's still a huge variation in people's day-to-day personality. Um, and especially sports where you tour a lot or you spend a lot of time together, you'll see that come out. And then the key becomes, how do you allow people or how do you foster or create an environment where people can be the best version of themselves? How do you assign roles or tasks um, that allows people's, I guess, their general personality or their default personality to shine through in a really functional way instead of trying to create a group of robots that are all the same? Um, so, yeah, we'll have common goals, but the, pers- the variation in personality is it's just as broad as vi- and varied as you get in the general population. Um, the only difference is there's some non-negotiables, you know, particularly around your work ethic. Um, that you can't be successful without. You talk about introverts, extroverts in those sort of groups. How do you go about dealing with teams, individuals, you know, the difference between male and females? You've worked with, you know, a range of different athletes at different levels. Um, How do you go about that? And do you find it challenging going from one to the other? Um, In some ways, you know, in some ways it's different. Like this is just anything else. In some ways it's different. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's very, very similar. Um, ultimately, what you need to find out is what's the, what's the common goal. And that's quite easy when, you, when someone's representing Australia or whatever, any kind of, any kind of level. Usually, you know, they want to win <laughs> and they want to be great if they're representing Australia. And some people are there for different reasons. Somebody might be really talented and not particularly love it and just want to cash. Um, and that's also fine as long as you're doing what you need to do. Um, but it's really about understanding people's motives. You know, why are people, why are they there? Is, and is that likely to generate differences across male and female sports? Yes and no. Like some of the differences I'll see in, in female and male sports, generally the female teams I've worked with, um, you know, the Aussie girls, very self-aware. Um, they think a lot, think a lot about, 
about the game, but I also think a lot about off-field stuff. Um, and I would suggest that team dynamics you know, are important across both male and female. My experience has been, if you're a great operator, like you're a great skills coach or great whatever, but you're an ordinary human being, I think you'll really, really struggle in the female environment. Like you need, you need to be perceived as a good person um, as well as having skill set. Otherwise, you know, they look to you, they might tune you out. Um, that's been my experience with the Aussie girls. I'll be my experience working across dance and the performing arts I've had a bit to do with. Um, yeah, I think you probably want to be more perceived. You need to be a good person as well. Um, in men's work, yeah, same thing to a certain extent. You want to be perceived as a good, a good person. But I think if you're really great with your skills, and you were an ordinary person, that the man would probably tolerate you a bit longer. Or oh, what can I get out of this bloke? Um, versus, you know, you're probably going straight away in the female environment. That's not necessarily completely borne out in the research, or whatever. that's an anecdotal experience that I've had. Um, that's not necessarily right. That's just been in the place that I've worked. It will perceive it. Um, otherwise, in that, mate, there's not that many major differences, you know? what Because you, if you start to think, okay, I'm working with girls, this is what girls are like. I'm working with boys, this is what boys are like. Then you shoot yourself in the foot because you don't do the work of going, what are these individuals like? What are these people like individually? What are these people like together as a group in this environment where we are, with the coach we have, with the team we have? Okay, that's when you actually start to, to do the work. You can't skip that part. Um, so how much stock you would put into, okay, I'm working with a women's team. Here's how I work. I'm working with a men's team. Here's how I work versus... You're going with your eyes open and say, I don't know this group of people here in this place in this time. Let me get to know them, both on a group and in individual level. So you can't, you can't bypass that and shortcut that um, by assuming tricks from gender uh, or age or things like that. Next episode on the podcast, we are lucky enough to have Ricky Dan who is a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. Ricky covers a range of really cool topics around strength and conditioning, athlete well-being, and performance states, specifically with relation to skiing, snowboarding, and surfing. If you are someone who wants to hit the flow state, as Ricky likes to call it, then tune in next episode. Here's a little sneak peek of what he had to say. The difference between conventional sports like cricket, tennis, and football uh, is the lack of rules and freedom. And when you combine this freedom with the extremely dangerous nature of them, it forces athletes into flow to perform. So when a surfer paddles for a big wave, they're not thinking about anything else in the world other than that wave. Because if their mind wanders at the elite level, and especially on the waves that they catch, that could result in either serious injury or even death. And, you know, when you're speeding towards the kicker on a snowboard about to complete whatever, a switch backside, triple cork, all of your attention and focus is on the task at hand. And I just think that is amazing. And, and all sports do elicit this flow response, but it's action sports that, act, that demand it. Okay, let's get back to this podcast. some absolutely incredible information so far I think you kind of opened everybody's eyes up to what it's like being in a professional environment and, and how to work with different people and how to help them through whatever they're going through I guess we're kind of getting to the piece de resistance at the moment 
and and that's how do we perform under pressure and I know you've talked to to me and others and uh, about performance routines and, and navigating the, the third space and particularly the three hours plus or minus one um, there's a lot of viewers or listeners out there that are, that are interested about how to perform under pressure because we all want to do it can you talk to us about what performance routines we might need to have and and how we do navigate that third space um, to try and help performance? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question, Jocko. It's one of the hot topics out there, like along with, you know, mental toughness and resilience, uh, you know, performing under pressure, I guess, comes under those, is one of the things that comes under those banners and people want to know a lot about. Let me just put out there by, by saying a disclaimer, like, by no means do I think I know everything about this or what is topic or that the things that I say are gospel or psychology knows everything about everything. That is definitely not the case. Um, there's many different ways of understanding things. There's this field of study of understanding different phenomena, even things that perform under pressure. There'll be different opinions, different theories. So I don't think there's any one answer. So I just want to uh, preface my comments by saying that um, my experience has been though, that is, there's a couple of things you look towards. So one, I guess really understanding yourself. Um, so having strong self-awareness because everybody, so there's certain default human behaviors for sure. Like um, we all have the ability to, well, unless you're a psychopath, we all have the ability to, to have emotion, to process emotion. There's certain things that will generally provoke um, certain responses from us in general as a default that, you know, if the plane, if you're on a plane and you hit turbulence and a serious turbulence, usually people feel a little bit of anxiety because it's a fear of death. Right. Um, if you were jumping off of a cliff, you know, into, into, a, into the ocean or whatever, like doing the cliff diving, you know, that's usually a bit of an adrenaline rush. Now, how you interpret that adrenaline rush could be either panic or, you know, feeling really alive and excited. But the point is there's certain default human emotions. They usually when something is really important and the consequence of the outcome is very important. We experience a sense of anxiety. Um, whenever there's uncertainty, uh, we experience anxiety. And ultimately, the thing we love about sports is that there's always uncertainty, right? The worst team could be the best team on a certain day. Um, a bad call could be the difference between winning and losing. So there's uncertainty a lot of the time. The conditions you can't control um, often. The opposition you can't control often. The only thing you can ever do is really control what you do and focus on yourself. Um, but a lot of the times, the default is to think about the things that are uncertain that you can't control, and that generates a, a response of anxiety generally. So it's really, but how do I understand myself? There's some default ones as a human being, but for me specifically, what are the things that trigger me? You know, when I'm operating at my best, what does that look like? You know, what am I thinking? Uh, what am I feeling? More importantly, what do I do? Um, and then when I'm not feeling so great, what are some of the early warning signs that I know take away from my performance? And I'm an overthinker. Um, if I'm an overthinker, well, then I need to be aware of that. And that's going to influence the way that I prepare. Or if the other way around, I'm a really, really, really laid back guy and I don't think enough, like, you know, um, but when I'm playing really well, I have just a slightly sharper focus. Then I need to be aware that I go, geez, you're likely to not do enough prep or not do enough work. You need to do a little bit more. Um, so how do you understand for yourself what's different for me? What are my strengths? What are my warning signs um, a lot that go along with the general kind of strengths and warning signs for human, human beings? And if we do that, then you start to put together a picture around what you need to be successful. Um, and through that process, there'll be a lot of trial and error. So I wouldn't jump straight away to the, to the mental skill side of it. That's the first part. How do you start to understand yourself? What pushes your buttons in a good way and what pushes your buttons in a bad way? And what are you going to do to start enhancing the good stuff 
um, and mitigating the effects of the stuff that's not great. And if you start to do that, then you start to work into specific skills. Then you start to look at going, okay, uh, what can I add to my game to help me focus? So whether it be things like, like mindfulness, which is just really, how do I understand where my awareness is? I'm going to create my attention. Um, then you start to look into things like visualization. Then you start to look into things like, uh, well, visualization or imagery, uh, goal setting, performance routines. Because what we're really trying to get at now is when I'm operating at my best, there's a certain emotion or mental state I'm in. And sometimes I get taken out of that state. What are the things that I can do um, to bring consistency to my mental state and my emotion? Um, and you can break that down into three really important categories, in my opinion. It's preparation. So before, there's three phases of anything, right? Before there's an event, right? There's a before, there's a during, and there's an after. So at each of those phases, anything you do, there's a before, during, after. We had this call this morning, a podcast. Before this, we're doing it now, and then after, um, you know, it'll be finished. So at each of those phases, if you're an athlete um, or you're a performer of any kind, there's certain things that are important. So before, what's really important is preparation. You know, do I understand the task that I'm heading into? Um, okay, if I understand what that thing is, what does my preparation look like? You know, for an athlete, that preparation is going to be tactical. It's going to be physical. Um, you know, it's going to be mental. It's going to be well-being challenges with sleep and food. Okay, once I understand what my best preparation is, now I can start to build consistency in the things that I do to allow me to have that preparation. And then once you work that out, you're thinking, okay, oh, in the middle, or when the time is for me to perform, what are the things that allow me to make good decisions um, and execute? You know, whether or not it be under pressure or be in the times where it's easy, what are some consistency I can bring? And that's where you're thinking, what are my performance routines? Right? How can I bring consistency to the things that I'm doing out in the middle? And then lastly, after you finish, there's reflection. And reflection is really, really important because we can do it really well or we can do it poorly. What's important is that you reflect accurately. Because if I reflect accurately on what's happened, then that will lead into my next, my next preparation, right? Um, and obviously, you need to recover in between. So it's how, do I, how do I influence that process and build consistency into the things that I do to prepare, the things that I do out in the, mid, or out in the middle or when I need to perform um, that allow me to make good decisions and execute well, and then the things that I do after that allow me to reflect accurately. And then when we're thinking about holistic balance, how do I step away from that process and recover and recharge my batteries? So I look at it as a, like a process like that. And the reason why it's important, as you said, to bring consistency to the things you do um, is that, you know, as I said before, the uncertainty of things breeds anxiety. Consistency um, allows you to focus in and brings you a sense of calm. And I'll give you a quick example of how you can kind of override your brain to bring consistency to the things you do, right? Teach your brain that when this thing happens, here's what I want you to do. So, um, there was a, an experiment years ago, behavioral science, um, Pavlov, there's this researcher, there was Pavlov, um, and he had these dogs, and what happened, he, had, he did a little experiment. So he noticed, obviously, when you bring food around a dog, um, that the dog salivates, right? The dog salivates, they get excited, they start drooling. So he noticed every time you bring the food, the dog salivates. You know, you prepare food, the dog salivates. So what he did is he started ringing a bell. He'd ring a bell when he, right when he was preparing the food, dog salivates you know he's ringing the bell the dog smells the food the dog salivates and eventually he paired it with that paired it with that paired it with that he would just ring the bell with no food and the dog starts salivating because the dogs worked out well shit when i hear the bell food's coming so your brain our brains work similarly to that we can by doing things over and over and putting a process in place we can tell our brains okay when this thing happens here's what i want you to do 
You know, when I get to the crease and I tap my bat three times and I say, watch the ball, I want you to focus in on, on watching the ball or playing tennis. In between points, when I'm bouncing the ball, right, and I'm going through my routine, I'm thinking about my next shot. Once I start to do that, it's about the next shot. So basically all you're trying to do is build consistency in your processes to tell your brain at this time, here's what I want you to do. Um, and the more you can bring that consistency to the table, the more consistent your performance is likely to be. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. And I think getting back to that, making sure that you're process-driven, um, I think for me in my cricketing, that's made a huge difference. And just having a few few words or or just routines that I go through between each ball, I know I've talked to you about, a, bit, a bit about it and, you know, after the ball being able to reflect and, and not being biased with that reflection, like maybe I do everything correct but miss the ball because it's too good for me. And just being able to reflect, did I get my process right there, yes or no? And if I did... And you just got to be happy with that. Sometimes a bowler can bowl a good pull, you know, um, and then and yeah. then sort of re- relax and refocus after that. I think are the main things that for young people out there, that's that's what's really helped me um, so far in my career. Because obviously, cricket and and all other sports, they're so dynamic. You have um, a ball coming at you at 140 kilometers an hour. It's hard to it's hard to not think about things that could happen. Um, so being able to refocus in. Um, and relax at the same time, I think, are, are key points to, to success. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and I'd say as well, just to be really clear, there's no, like, you know, saying building consistency and processes. When people use the word like, process and strategy, it sounds like this thing, you know, this, like, fancy thing that's out there. No, no, no. It's just really understanding the way you think, um, understanding the way you feel and, and react, and making sure you put some stuff in place. It can be really, really simple. It's just something, all we can do is think, feel, and act. Right? That's all we can ever do. So it's something that you're thinking about. It's something that you're, that you're feeling, you're trying to regulate your emotions, or it's something that you're doing. Um, and it's just about being consistent with what those things are. And another piece you asked about performing under pressure. To answer that question specifically, one of the biggest things in allowing yourself to perform under pressure is what they call um, acceptance and diffusion. So it comes from acceptance commitment therapy. But if you're fighting all the time, trying not to feel nervous, for example, when it's a natural human response, People kind of often come to a psychologist or sports site and they go, I'm feeling really nervous. Like, what do you got for me to stop me from feeling nervous? And I'm like, why do you want to stop feeling nervous? Oh, because it feels uncomfortable. Well, I'm okay, but can you feel nervous and perform well? Has that ever happened? Yeah. Have you ever not felt nervous and performed poorly? Yeah. So the being nervous isn't the thing that makes you perform poorly, but it feels uncomfortable, right? And that's what people are trying to escape. So sometimes you spend a lot of energy wasting time trying to not feel nervous, right? Or trying to not feel unpleasant emotions versus acceptance. Going, you know, sometimes I will feel nervous and that's okay. And sometimes I'll feel flat and I'm motivated. That's okay. I don't need to fuse with that, right? I feel flat. I am not flat. I feel nervous. I am not nervous. That's what that's the difference between fusing with a with an emotion or being able to diffuse from that. Just identify that that's what you're feeling. But that doesn't mean you can't do the thing you do. And we, we all understand this because not every day do you feel like going to work, right? But you still get up and go to work. So we understand that you can have a difference between what you're feeling and what you're doing. And emotions, we can never completely control. And our thoughts, we can never con- completely control. Now, we can manage them, um, but trying to completely control them is a waste of time and energy. What's better is that we just understand them and accept them and control your behavior. And when you can actually, because behavior can always be process-driven, right? If you can start to control your behavior and accept and not fuse with your emotions, like accept that sometimes you're not going to feel great. 
But what do you need to do? And if you start, start to live there, live in what you need to do, right, and accept the other stuff, you find yourself being a lot more consistent. You're not wasting energy. Um, so that would be something I give to people. If you're thinking about performing under pressure, don't think you can't be nervous and play well. That's just, that's just not true. Um, if that's what your aim is, to never feel nervous again, <laughs> it can't help you. Um, but if your aim is just to get more consistent with how you perform, then, you know, definitely a lot of stuff can be done there. Pete, before we move on to one of our favorite segments, man, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I've learned a lot from you in the past and even today, um, talking about emotions, how to create positive environments. And I know even in my industry, talking about sports performance, strength and conditioning, even with cricket coaching, and I know Jack's the same, um, how you can build that interpersonal relationship and touching on a few of these aspects and getting the most out of the athletes that we coach. Um, it's it's really unbelievable to hear this and just have a chat with you on here. So uh, thank you so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate absolute knowledge bombs throughout the show. Um, and I know some of the listeners, even <laughs> the elite level down to people just figuring out how to, you know, go about their own processes when they're playing their own sport. Um, it's going to be a lot of help for them, mate. So thank you so much. No dramas, mate. Thanks to you guys for having me on the show. Alrighty, well, strap yourselves in because it's time for Battle of the Brains. Well, now comes our favourite time, mate. We're on, we're on to the Battle of the Brains. So I know talking to yourself, there's a few hot topics that I know you've got a bit of an interest in outside of cricket. We've got Mega Man X. <laughs> Such as job. Yeah, yeah, for sure, frequent fly points mate so i was thinking about a, um, a topic on that maybe a bit of long short drift but what i have gone with and i know a topic of choice that we both like is reggae and dancehall music so you've got three questions um go well mate the aim obviously is to get three out of three and let's see how you go all right man i'm pretty nervous i know that you've been you've been far more up to date with the, with the reggae and dancehall tunes than i have so i hope i can get them Pete, I've never seen someone so excited to start playing reggae music as Paul right now. It is hilarious. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is an easy one, so no pressure. Complete the next two lines to this famous Bob Marley song. Rise up, hold <laughs> with the rising sun. Three little birds pitch by my doorstep. Sorry, what are the words you want me to complete? I want you to complete... The next two lines to this famous song. I'll go through it again. Yeah, yeah. Rise up this morning, smiled with the rising sun. Three little birds yeah. by my doorstep. Yeah, pitched by my doorstep. Singing sweet songs of melodies pure and true. Singing, this is my message to you. That one is incredible. Um, I was expecting you to get that, but Jack's obviously very happy with, with you there, mate. So well done, you. All right. <laughs> Question number two. In what city does the famous dancehall artist Pop Khan originate from in Jamaica? Is it A, Kingsbury, B, Portmore, or C, Montego Bay? I'm going to say... I'm going to say Portmore, but I don't know. I'm going to say Portmore. Done. Peter Clark, two from two. Portmore, correct. Was that a stab in the dark or was that an educated guess? No. I know he said, I know he heard him say Portmore in a few of his songs, you know, so I was figuring that that's where it was. Um, but yeah, we got it. 
Perfect. All right, number three. This one's going to be the trickiest one, but I think you might know this one. Okay. So I know okay. you were familiar with the famous Vibes Cartel and Movado clash, the Gully versus Gaza, as the fans might say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> clash. In what year clash? Was it A, 2007, B, 2008, or C, 2009? Oh. Come on, Pete. That's a good question. No, you I'm trying to think where it was at the time. I, I want to say, oh, gee, that's so tight. Those years are so close. It's <laughs> an error. I want to say 2007. Oh, geez. That is. What is it? Correct. 2008 is the answer, Pete. Actually, oh. only two out of three, but not a bad effort, mate. Number. Quite difficult. I, I, I didn't remember the year. I remember the tune. I remember vibe. The boy run like a wounded dog. <laughs> Records in record. Don't run. Bye-bye-bye. Don't run. Well, That's the tune. Well, Pete, we might have to get you on for episode two for yourself and talk about some more, um, you know, in-depth sports psych topics and you can have another go again three out of three next time. <laughs> no dramas there. Thanks again, Pete, for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And I'm sure the listeners will get a heap out of what um, you've talked about today. So thanks again. No problems, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. And good luck. Well, that's the end of another episode of the PJ Performance Podcast. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. We hope you thoroughly enjoyed it and took some things from Pete that you may be able to use in your own game or professional career. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, could you do Paul and I a massive favour and hit subscribe, please? That way, we receive a notification each time we post a new episode. And with so many great guests still to come, it's a no-brainer. We would love to get some feedback from all you great people out there, so feel free to send us an email or leave a comment about what you've enjoyed so far or people you may want to see on the upcoming episodes. Finally, Keep an eye out as we will soon be launching our website where all our online cricket skills programs will be available for purchase. Look forward to catching you next time on the PJ Performance Podcast. Thanks.